We, uh, we're trying something new this morning, and uh, anytime we try something new, there's always like this uh, uncertainty. It's kind of strange or kind of weird and a little bit to us, um, but we were talking about it after worship last week was like, we, Joy and I are, are uh, you could call us children of the altar. Uh, you know, uh, I, I uh, got saved, uh, uh, I, I was witnessed or evangelized to the gospel outside of church, but I tell you what, um, the altars held some spe- uh, special memories for me uh, when it comes to all things church. The time where we would have a place where we met the Lord, whether it was on our knees or standing up there and praying with the pastor or praying with other people. And uh, I can't tell you how many times where, uh, one thing I will say to this too about the altar, don't, don't get me wrong, the altar is not just the place we stand right in front here. Uh, when I was first filled by the Holy Spirit, um, I... Uh, I was in the in the middle aisle of a church in Grand Prairie, Texas, uh, with three ladies around me that uh, full of the Holy Ghost. There, uh, uh, they were the elders of their ch- of the church, basically. And I think I was like one of the youngest people in there, if not for my wife. And uh, and man, there it was a powerful moment, very powerful moment. And that was an altar for me. And the, the irony of things is, is uh, for the time that I was there and the time that I spent there at that church, um, the, uh, I, I won't forget I had a dream not too long ago. And the one place where God took me back to in the dream was I was sitting on the front row of that church again. And let me tell you, that church is not a megachurch. That church, if, if I ever saw 30 people in there, that's about as big as it ever got. It probably hold about 200. So 30 felt empty. And, uh, and seeing all the and being in my dream, I remember there sitting there and feeling and like, you know, the, the I can't even remember whether it was the pastor or whatever, but I remember standing up and I remember them saying, or I remember hearing the Lord saying, like, here I come. And I remember the Holy Spirit just hitting me in the dream. And like, it was like slow motion falling down. And I'm like having all these thoughts as I'm falling down. It was so surreal. And, uh, but it's funny how the altar and where you meet the Lord, which really are the altar moments of your life, um, they, really, they really have an impression upon you. And uh, one of the things that Joy and I we covet is our time at the altar. Uh, those of you who have done youth ministry with me, you know this. I don't think we ever had a service where we didn't have altar. Uh, and, and one of the things is that we understand, too, is that that's a created moment. That's a created moment where we intentionally and purposefully go to the Lord uh, and so one thing we're trying to try out today, yeah, we're, we don't want to lose our kids in that moment. Uh, um, and we do realize how hard it is to have that moment with kids. It's just hard. Kids are kids. Uh, but we don't want to exclude them either. So this was kind of the balance between the two uh, for that moment where you need to meet the Lord. You need some, uh, a good dose of God patience at that moment, right? You know, <laughs> like, all right, because we're going to give your kids back. So you're going to need some God patience right back, right? Me too. I got three, man. I know. Uh, I've had. I've needed some altar moments. You know. Uh, I'm. I'm a guy with a whole bunch of women in my house. That means there's a whole lot of things I don't understand. I need some God patience. All right. Um, and so we wanted to incorporate. We love them doing the percussion. They love doing it. Can you see them? And they love it. And what we teach them is like Joe was saying. We have friends that like will post on Facebook. Like especially we have some some uh, friends back in Terrell, and I, I love watching them because their life. You want to talk about a life on display for Christ. I've watched them like battle it out. They struggled early on in their marriage and 
Like when they first got married, there were some issues there that probably that could have, would have kept any un, any person from being married. And uh, they they did it. They stayed. They went. They got married. Ten years goes by. All of a sudden, they were struggling again. I think it was like a couple of years ago. They were struggling again, and I saw they, they split up, and I thought, man, they're getting divorced. They're all talking about it. Next thing you know, they're back in church. They're going. They're together again. They're working it out, and I'm like, it's and they're living it out on Facebook, man. And like I'm watching this, and I, but I'm like, I'm kind of inspired. Like as, as messy as it is, it's honest. And they keep falling. Like the one thing that keeps drawing them back is they're plugged in. They're plugged into a group of believers that have, they've got a support system, right? It's not easy. It's hard. But they've got a support system that's helping them build back, constantly go back and build a relationship with each other. And I saw a picture of them the other day, like Joyce saying, where their kids were raising their hands in the back seat. And she, you know, the kids don't know that mom can see through that you know, uh, rear view mirror there. They can see what's going on. And so... Uh, those are good moments. Where do, they, where do you think your kids learn how to do that? Well, they, they learn from watching you. They learn from watching you. And so part of what we're trying to do is just kind of develop that, develop the culture where we teach our kids. How do we, how do we praise and worship God? But also have, give you the time to have an altar time, to have a time where you are quiet and you can be alone with the Lord. And obviously it's hard to do in a room where we can't fully escape. But the Lord is great. And, uh, I, I, and, and one thing I've learned about being a parent, and if you're, if you're not a parent, maybe you don't understand it, but one thing I've learned is that I have figured out how to shut off my kids and wife right out of my ears. Uh, I'm not trying to be funny, but I know what you know what I'm talking about, right? So sometimes one thing, before we sit there and say, well, it's too distracting, it's too distracting, then turn, turn that, whatever that is, when you want to like ignore everybody else in your life, on in your brain, right? Give it all to God. Give it all to God. I know how gifted you all are. I, one of the things I found out with hearing aids is how really great, uh, like with hearing aids, it shuts off all my depth perception in hearing. I hear everything. I hear my breath. I hear my shoes slide across the floor. I hear everything, but the one thing I realized just with my regular hearing, how much I can tune in what I want to hear and tune out what I don't want to. So there are times where we need to tune out some things. We need to tune out the world. And when, when we provide an altar time, this, right after uh, we're going to worship a little right after this, and when we provide an altar time, that's the time for you to tune out. Tune out everything else. Tune out all the distractions and just focus in on God. Amen? Let's begin. Back at the cookbook, like I said, I've got a ways to go on this thing. And this one is probably like a hard subject for me. I've had some experience with it, uh, and I'll just kind of go into it, and we can kind of talk about that as we go. Uh, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I know some of you feel like, well, we already kind of been there through on Wednesdays. Yes, we have, uh, but this is where I'm going to begin, and we're going to start with the scripture this morning. This might be one of the most important things I ever teach you. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel, saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much more, much more. 
Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and, I will go to, and, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Started out with some weight, right? Can you imagine the weight of these words upon David as he's caught red-handed right in the middle of adultery and murder? Now can you imagine having to confront the king, this man after God's own heart, with this kind of statement? Can you imagine walking up to someone who has the power, who would be within his right to kill you if you say anything bad about his life, which, mind you, his predecessor did. Saul was guilty of killing a priest. He was guilty of doing things. When he didn't like things, he'd just go do it and get it done. You're standing before a man who has absolute authority and power over you. Can you imagine having to confront this man who eventually would be called man after God's own heart? Now, I'm sure Nathan didn't want this to be the most defining moment of his ministry. Nobody desires moments like this. Yet here it is. It's staring at you right in the face. Do you say something? I mean, something needs to be said. Or do you let it go and just trust, you know, God will deal with it. But here's the thing. God did deal with it. He sent Nathan to hold David accountable. Nathan's words were supposed to alarm David's heart that he was bringing off course. David, fortunately, he heard God's words. We know that he repented. He heard the prophet. He took those words in. He fell down before the floor and got on his face and repented before the Lord. Now, is accountability that simple? It can be. It can be. Today, there's like this widening gap in this area. And I got some issues with it. There's a huge gap. And over the decade that I've been a part of pastoral circles of ministry, I've seen an obvious lack of accountability amongst the clergy. It's not taught at leadership conferences, I can tell you, because I've spent the last 10 to 12 years going. It's not taught in leadership books, because I've read over 50. I can tell you. There's an eerie quietness about this issue that's unsettling. And unfortunately, it's bled from the pulpit to the pew. That's the reason you don't hear about it much. I don't hear any sermons hardly ever preached about accountability and how we should have it. Now, the few things that they will tell you as a pastor is this. Don't ever be in a room alone with a woman. Never. You always make sure somebody else is there. Why? Because accusations can, that's all it takes. You destroy a man's life. An accusation can so you all, that, that's the kind of stuff they worry about. Accountability and humility, accountability in legalism, bad doctrine, theology. No, 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 no. We just don't want you to get caught. We don't want to get you in trouble. But we don't think about accountability in the life. Where are the Samuels who like walked with strength and the power of God and that are willing to confront these men like Saul? Who need to be confronted. Mind you that Saul was all Saul, Saul was king and he could do whatever he wanted. But make no mistake, he was scared of Samuel. Samuel could come in and talk to him like a child. And he wouldn't do anything but grovel. 
Where are the ones like Nathan, who have the courage to confront even the Davids? Who ones who seemingly are good people but need a little help? Accountability has never been popular. No one likes being called aside for their conduct or behavior. Oh, come on. As soon as somebody does, we're like, well, you're just a legalist. Well, you're acting like an idiot. You need help. <laughs> That's against God's word. It's against God's scripture. You're acting counter to God. You're counter to the things that you say out of your mouth. You're acting like a hypocrite. No one likes being called aside. I can tell you right now, I hated it as a kid. But as an adult, I somehow desperately needed it in my life. When there is a lack of accountability in the church, God has always been faithful to raise up the ministry of the prophet. Now, uh, th these men are wild men. They have their beginning in the quiet place or in the prayer closet, as we would say. They are men who've been shaped in the searing heat of the blacksmith's forge. They're beaten and made and molded. They are men who've committed their life to the transforming works of God. They've determined themselves to know God like few do. They've spent time with Him, countless hours with Him, to become His image to this world. It's said of the person that stands with God, need not fear any man. That's why the prophet tends to be a little bold. Thus, the prophet keeps God's church in line with God. Prophets cannot be lazy. They must be diligent in prayer. Listen to the words of A.W. Tozer this morning. The amount of loafing practiced by the average Christian in spiritual things would ruin a concert pianist if he had allowed himself to do the same thing in the field of music. The idle puttering around that we see in the church circles would end the career of a big league pitcher in one week. No scientist could solve his exacting problem if he took as little interest in it as the rank and file of Christians take in the art of being holy. The nation whose soldiers are as soft as, and undisciplined as the soldiers of the churches would be conquered by the first enemy that attacked it. Triumphs are not won by men in easy chairs. Is there any wonder why there are so few prophets and so little accountability? Let me tell you what the Bible's riddled with. It's riddled with of warnings to the cost of being a prophet. Listen to Nehemiah in chapter 26. But despite all this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them to return to you, and they committed terrible blasphemies. Or how about... How about the words in Matthew 23, verse 37? Jerusalem who Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Does anyone want to volunteer for this kingdom position? Step forward right now. Because death surely awaits. Is there any question why this thing has disappeared from the fivefold ministry? If you don't know what that is, that's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Man, we've hurtly great at preached about the fivefold. How many of you have just seen so many people step up to be the prophet? Most people have met the pastor of a church, and most people have met teachers in the church, but very few of you actually know a true prophet. Why? Because the prophet is the friend of God first and your friend second. That translates into the type of person and kind of person that will call you out for your sinful living and beckon you to come back to God. The prophet will care less about your comfort and more about the cross. For it's through the cross that mankind finds their way back to God through his grace specifically. 
Accountability is not unloving. Actually, quite the contrary. It's compassion combined with desperation. Accountability is the ability to seeing things, the impending doom of your consequences, and then pleading or, or beckoning for you to repent and return. But I, like I said, I never said it was easy. I mean, John the Baptist, he's like a prime example, right? In Mark chapter 6, 17 through 19. It says, Herod has sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife. Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Now, while Herod and Herodias, what they'd done was against God's law. John wasn't like pointing them out for the sake of everybody could see and look at their sin, look how bad they are. He was trying to help them see the seriousness of their choices. These are the leaders of Israel. He was being the voice of God to them. The cost of accountability for this fire-branded man that Christ called the greatest man born of a woman cost him his head. Let that sink in a bit. The act of accountability and the ministry of the prophet are tightly knit together. They speak to, to what they see. We've talked about this. We, they speak to what they see, except they just do it with an intense amount of passion. And you don't believe me? Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 20, 8 and 9. When I speak, words burst out. Violence and destruction, I shout. So these messages from the Lord have made me a household joke. But if I say, I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name. His word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I'm worn out trying to hold in. I can't do it. I mean, you know this feeling. You know this feeling. This isn't new to you. When you can see what's wrong with something and you can't help but want to say something about it, you know this feeling. Especially if you think you could change someone's life forever, right? Or worse, it could absolutely save their life. Oh, come on, man. You all got opinions on Facebook. You offer them why? Not to show you you're right, because you think you see something everybody else can't see, and if they could just see it, that it would change them. You understand this. This is Jeremiah's predicament. Jeremiah can see the consequences of his generation, the lawlessness, the sinful decisions they keep making. God had revealed to him the future of his nation called the weeping prophet because the things he sees keeps him constantly in sorrow. He's a man whose heart is heavy and is broken for his people. By the way, his heart is broken because God's heart is broken. And he spends enough time with God to know. He doesn't like the having to use the words like violence and destruction. As a matter of fact, meaning he hates it. Feels like he's always prophesying doom and gloom. Like everything I got to say is bad. I don't want to say it because it's all bad. I'd love to be one of these other guys who are preaching all good, but I can't see anything else. All I can see is all bad. He's broken. But it's the only thing he sees. Thus, it's the only thing he can prophesy. He hates it. What can he do? He knows that obedience is success. His affirmation comes from being faithful to what God has given him and nothing more. Otherwise, if it was going to be for anything else, he would have left it a long time ago. Because you can tell he's, you can tell he's having this war within him. I don't want to say these things. I hate being this guy. 
I mean, come on, is this the guy you want to take to your party? Mm-mm. In my life, I've encountered too many pastors in need of accountability. Too many. I've seen them lost in adultery. I've seen them, I, I, I've seen them caught misappropriating funds. I've caught, I've caught pastors lying from the pulpit, from outside of the pulpit. I've seen them do all things that are the craziest stuff. I've seen them do things illegal. I've seen some of them just be lazy. Pastors are men like any other men. Let me say that again. Pastors are men like any other men. They are neither different nor better. They are not more anointed than anyone else in the church, regardless of what you've been taught. Anointing comes from your time with God. You want more anointing? Spend more time with God. I'm going to tell you right now, there are people in, in churches right now in the pew that have more anointing than the pastor in the pulpit. Why? Because they spend more time with God. Man, you've got to go to the source. That's where everything comes from. Too many. There's only one shepherd, and that's the great shepherd. Like all people, pastors are subject to temptations the same as anyone else. When you combine power and authority together, that's a dangerous combination. It creates temptation. Go look at every king. Go, go back and go look at 1st and 2nd Samuel. Then go read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Kings. Look at how many good leaders there are. You can count them on one hand. They all got their issues. It's funny, I've seen some people talk about some kings, you know, we'll go listen to somebody talk, and they're going to tell me about Jehoshaphat, and they have this, like, one little story where he does great. But don't look at his life. His look at his life is horrible. He's a lot like the American, he should be like the American president. Because when things are good and wealthy, when he's wealthy and all the things are good, he's like, I'm all about God. Actually, it's the, wait a minute, I got it back. It's the opposite. When everything is good, I'm not about God at all. I kind of do dumb stuff. I kind of talk with kings. I hang out with people I shouldn't hang out with. It's kind of bad, right? And then like when, when it's down, like when he's about, like one that they always want to preach is like when he's down and he's like about to die and like, he, Lord, help me, get me out of this. And the Lord shows him grace and favor. And they're like, yeah, see, he called upon the name of the Lord. Yeah, but when, why did he have to live his life like that the whole time? And then the one time, right? <laughs> Leaders are like anybody else. You start combining power. And authority together, it creates new temptations. When I joined the ministry, I was a bit naive. I thought that there, the men, these men who like swore their lives to Christ to do his work, to feed his sheep, would be the very ones that would commit themselves to accountability. Surely this is happening, right? And there, there, there are men and women all around these leaders. Come on, man, they've got their spouses. They've got deacons or elder leaders around them. They've got denominational hierarchies. When I was with the Assemblies of God, they have like presbyters and regional presbyters and district presbyters, and there's so many like funny names. Just keeps going. Superintendents, big ones, general superintendent. Like they got all this stuff, right? But with all these people around our leaders, how come there's still no accountability? How come they still struggle with it? Because to hold someone accountable means you've got to confront them. Not everyone's up to confrontation. It's the truth. My wife calls it a gift. She says, I have the gift of confrontation. Maybe. Look back in my life, maybe so. Maybe the Marine Corps helped me with that one. 
I mean, I, I have a, a, my, my job history kind of shows that I'm probably probably pretty good at that. I had a job there for a while where I worked for an electric company, and what I did was shut your electricity off when you didn't pay your bill. And I had to confront a lot of very not friendly people. A lot of them. And, and she would like, but you like it. I'm like, I don't know that I like it. I'm just not scared of it. And he goes, and that's why it's a gift. Because most people are scared of getting up in somebody's face. It's like, I don't like it. I feel fear. But in the middle of fear, something changes in me. It's like it makes me even more bold. Like it's an adrenaline thing or something. I don't know. The thing about confrontation, regardless, it isn't easy. I still feel fear even though I face things. I still feel fear. Here's the thing is, I don't think it's supposed to be easy either. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a checks and balances what I think it is. Because it, some of the subject, true accountability shouldn't be taken lightly. We shouldn't feel like, we should, listen, we better know what we're saying before we walk up and confront somebody. I mean, if you're going to be somebody's accountability partner, you've got to know <laughs> you're going to say things and do things that are going to upset them. Confronting someone in their sin is like trying to rescue a wild animal from a snare. Oh, you're just trying to free the animal. But, uh, spoiler alert, it's going to bite you in the process. And if you got kids, you know this is true. I'm just trying to, te- I'm just trying to give you, you don't understand where this decision is going to lead. I'm trying to help you. You don't understand. I do. I'm ex- I've experienced that part. I've made that mistake before. I'm, I can see this decision is going to lead to a bad place. I'm trying to help you make a better one. No, you don't get it. You don't understand. You know this conversation. Right? And it, what happens is, as an adult, we didn't like it as a kid, so we really don't like it as an adult either. So we stay away from it. And in the process, there's no accountability for anyone, and then we wonder why our world is the way it is. That's because nobody spanked when they needed to spank. And by the way, just because you're at 40, 50, 60, 70, doesn't mean you don't need to be spanked once in a while. By the way, that's how God says he loves you. It's hurting him a lot more than it's hurting you. The wisdom of Solomon was fond of accountability, and he saw it as a treasure to be had. Ecclesiastes verse, or chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who alone two will withstand him a threefold cord is not quickly broken accountability partners you up and protects you it keeps you in safe places it stands you up and allows you to continue to move forward in maturing in christ i've never liked being called out or criticized i'm I'm just like you I've, i've never liked it and i don't know too many who do however i consider every critique in statement made about me in the ministry that I'm involved in. I, I, everything I take into consideration. Now, I've had some people tell me, you shouldn't take in everything. Well, wait a minute. I'll be honest. With you. I, I've said this in here before. Some of my people I would call my enemies have revealed great gaps in my theology or great gaps in the way I think or in my motivation. Sometimes nobody understands your weakness like your enemy. So sometimes you need to think about what they say about you. And if it's true, then you need to consider changing whatever needs to be changed. And if it's not, you throw it away. It has no merit. I'm going to tell you right now, though, if you think all of it has no merit, you're a fool. 
Sometimes you're, that's sometimes the weakness of your enemy is his arrogance by exposing the things that are weak in you. Because that allows you to fortify and build up. That'll preach all by itself. As a person who asks questions about everything, I feel more obligated to listen and try to answer the questions that are asked of me. I mean, I'm a person who asks questions. I provoke by asking questions. I am provoked when, I, when questions are asked of me, and it makes me study and learn. I, I, I'll never forget, uh, uh, literally, I think uh, um, uh, one of the times where I found it really hurtful in my life, I thought it was like a really bad thing, and it turned out to be a really great thing, but it was such a long journey. It took me, took me a couple of years to realize how smart it was, but I was working for a Christian company uh, that did Bible studies and things like this and uh, was exposed to some guys coming out of Theological Seminary. Great school phenomenal school but I was not very smart at that point and very in rooted in like doctrine and understanding some old doctrine and, and, and a lot of the things about the Bible that really have no play in a normal Sunday I mean it would just be confusing for a lot of us to talk about some of these things but when you're around a Bible students they talk about a lot of stuff that's very hard and very difficult to understand so we're talking about and they they proposed this idea to me and literally when I heard it my first things out of my mouth were blasphemous and I, and I start shooting it down. I'm like, that's the dump. that is so bad. I can't believe y'all are teaching people that. Like, I, I, it's right. So I spent like literally, I don't know, like a year, I think, reading everything I could get my hands on to disprove this thing. Dang Baptist, man, became one of them. Like, you know, I mean, like, it was good doctrine and it was hard to refute. I don't, I, I can't, I can't refute it. Actually, the more I started, the more I tried to, the more I was like, Okay, it's unrefutable, like it's right. And maybe I, and I had to go, I don't really know a lot now. I mean, like I thought I knew what I was like doing, but I'm really like so shallow in what, what my knowledge was. Like they, what they were saying was so scripturally true, I could not prove it wrong. And it hurt me to admit to be wrong. But praise God, God sent kids in my life to confront me. Praise God that they were sent to challenge me, to challenge my thinking, to challenge my way. Right? Makes me ask questions now. Makes me not discount anything I hear right off the bat. I'll go look, find out, is this true? Do I think this is true? Can I disprove it? Because that's how I start with everything. If I can disprove it, it's easy for me to throw that in the trash and delete it. But if I can, I will search and search and search. I I read books for a year, and I'm going to tell you, I read some of those boring, mundane, gross books. I would never tell you their titles because I pray you never have to read them. Because it bothered me so bad that I was wrong. Go back and apologize to those guys. On a side note, have you ever noticed how angry some people get when you ask them a question? You ever done that? You just start asking questions? I mean, not just any question, but you know, a question that challenges their thoughts or their lifestyle or their authority. You ever notice like you start asking questions a lot and just like... They don't like you like instantly. You're like, you know that you're going to be outed as like part of not, you're, you're not going to be the group because you annoy us. You're asking way too many questions. Just take it on face value. I mean, and sometimes it's the type of questions. For instance, I knew a guy who would ask for the financial report from his local church on a monthly basis. Never once made a false accusation against anybody. He just asked for the report, Right? But that didn't stop the leaders of that church to be disgruntled or begrudging towards him. They took it as him questioning their leadership and authority. 
He's the only person we have to get this pulled together for every month and hand it to him because he needs to see it. I was like, what did you do wrong? I got, by the way, if you don't know this by now, I am never like the pastor's friend over the pew. It's just not going to happen. Even all my pastor friends that call me, that they know not to call me if they're going to complain about their people. Because I'm like, dude, that's God's gift to you. It's like saying, you know what? It ain't good enough, guy. You better quit that. You better stop right now. Your people's problem is you. Your heart ain't big enough. Your heart ain't wide enough. And your heart ain't loving enough. Get it together. I'm not saying they're not mean. There's always those sheep that you got to beat with a stick. That's why God gave it to you, bro. But you better love them because they're yours. You love them. Even the ones that are the worst, you better love them. You never know when they're going to come in handy. Come on, if, as we've been studying through the book of Samuel, we know that Joab is thorn in the side to David. But when he needs the enemy killed and everybody you know, beat up, guess who he calls? So sometimes those guys that you need to beat with a stick once in a while, they come in handy. This guy was simply just holding them accountable. Hey man, I'm just asking just to see it. Nobody's accusing him. Nobody's pointing fingers and anything like that. And it just like was begrudging to them. Do you have an accountability partner? For some of you, it's your spouse. Good, it should be. The rest of you, you better find one. In this way, we fulfill God's word. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day. That's accountability. While it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Sin is deceiving. It feels like something we love or should like. It feels familiar. And so we embrace it. We know that, listen, Bible even says that sin is good for fun for a season. So it's not that sin isn't fun sometimes. Is it good for you? No. It leads to death. Will it feel fun? Absolutely. Your feelings can betray you. This is why you need an outsider in your life, somebody who is not you that's able to tell you, hey, this ain't you. This don't need to be you. I can tell you where that decision is going to lead in your life. The two big mentors in my life that helped me get to where I am right now with, with loving the Lord and pursuing God and being brave enough to try things and do things, one of them is Steve McKnight, who mentored my life. And I can tell you there were times Stephen had to sit me aside and had to talk to me. I mean, I, I, I've told, I, some of you have told the story about being on the bus. And uh, they're like, hey, we're going to put Jim on the bus. We're going to get him. He's a big guy. He'll scare a Marine guy. When these kids act up, he'll scare them. I got to ride the bus one time. Scared a kid too bad. They said, you can't drive it no more. Can't be on it anymore. He had to come sit me down. And then one time I talked to him. I said, hey, I don't want to ride with all the kids from point A to point B someplace. And he's like, oh, you don't. This is where the ministry's at. You'll be talking with these kids for hours and hours. Da, 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 da. And, and it was like, it was like I had to be rebuked for my own selfishness. Yeah, because it's more comfortable in my car. I don't want to sit with 12 other teenagers in a van. It smells and stinks and it's packed and solid. And like, I don't have a lot to talk. I'm 40, like when I was 30 something years old. It's not like I got a lot in common, man. I got kids and everything. I mean, like, it's like, Jim, you don't understand. You just sit and listen to them. Be their friend for the next three or four hours on the van. You don't realize how much ministry is happening, right? Well, I can't see the, res the results of that, right, at that time. So he's trying to tell me. I'm trying to help you. You want to do these things. You're, you tell me that you want to do ministry, but you don't want to do what it takes to do ministry. Well, I can't see that, but he can. That's the prophet in my life. I need him to hold me accountable. I say that I want this. He's holding me accountable, telling me how to get there, right? And if anybody tells you now, they'll know that I covet that time now. 
You have no idea how much accountability has shaped my life into being what it is today. That I would not be here had it not been for people like Steve McKnight or uh, one of the other things that I did is I had a mentor that was in his uh, late 70s, early 80s uh, by the name of uh, Merle Adams. And Merle would teach me a lot of things that, man, only life can teach you. And between those two, I mean, these guys helped shape me and mold me. These guys called me out when things weren't right. When I said something inappropriate or anything else, there's a big leadership story. Maybe one day I'll talk. I'm not going to get into the whole Taco Bell story today. It was a bad day. And he called me to the curb on it. Some of you know that story. He called me to the curb on it. He still uses that story to teach leaders today. You know how embarrassing that is? My life is like the Bible now. Like my embarrassing moments are the lessons of other people. Way, thank you, Jesus. God, man, that's how he works. Don't let you forget it, right? Accountability. It's what shapes you and molds you. We all need it. It's good to have our motives in check. It's good to have our mission in check, right? Even this morning, I'm telling you that even as I came in and I come here early, about an hour and a half early to pray and things, and I'm like, yeah, write down, okay, yeah, Lord, uh, I'm going to have him pray for us a place. And God goes, is that really what I want? Or is that what you want? That's accountability, even if it's from the Lord, man. To be able to say those things to you, I have to, I have to be honest before you as well. Or else my, the accountability that I have even amongst you becomes out of whack. Is my mission in check? Am I doing what God's called me to do? Those are valid questions. My, my, the greatest accountability partner I have is my wife. My wife is the, the queen at telling me all about like uh, uh, if I say, hey, we're, we're doing a, a we're, I'm thinking about this or I'm thinking about uh, what if we did this over here? And she goes like, why are we doing that? She'll ask 50 million questions. and I'm like, well, if you just hate it, just say you hate it. I'm not. You know how that is, right? You're like, that's me getting mad at the questions, right? I just want you to go along with it is what I'm really saying secretly, aren't I? Why can't you just be okay with it? Because uh, I don't understand why. And you know what? As a leader, my mind goes to this. As much as I don't like it, all right, it rubs me. But my mind goes, if I can't convince her, I sure ain't going to be able to convince y'all. Because those are all valid conclusions. I'm not doing a good job as a leader if I can't lead my wife to that place either. I sure am not going to be able to lead a church there. Because if my wife don't want to go, I guarantee you, you don't either. We need our mission in check. We need our life in check. Accountability acts as the stone that sharpens the sword. Yeah, it grinds us a bit. But we get sharp that way. It's not going to be easy. But then again, when has the cross-centered life ever been easy? It's never been a promise for the easy road. It's a road that leads to certain death. But by the way, guys, there is no resurrection life without a cross-centered death. And you don't get to have a Holy Spirit-filled life without a resurrected life. Okay? One can't come before the other. Which, by the way, I think a lot of churches think it can. I think a lot of churches want to practice the Holy Spirit without practicing the cross. And I don't think you get one without the other. It's not going to happen. It happened in a, in a reason, right? Cross life, transformed life, renewed life, resurrected life. And a resurrected life to a Holy Spirit-filled life. Accountability. We must strive to follow against the ground of accountability and allow it to shape us into what God intends us to be which is according to Peter is this, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy 
nation. That's what accountability will bring you. And I, my favorite one, God's special possession. To be holy as he is holy. That's what we're striving for. That's where accountability will lead. It's not a fun subject, I know. Like, this is one of the things that was on my heart, part of this issue. These things where I'm looking in the church, and then I'm looking at, at the church of the, of, the, of the New Testament, and it's just night and day. It's just night and day. There were apostolic figures in the New Testament to discount anything that was happening. By the way, aren't you glad that we don't handle it in the New Testament way? Because when the New Testament, when you just lied in church, Ananias and Sapphira fell dead at Peter's feet. Aren't you glad that when you lie in church, that doesn't happen? By the way, we would probably put Peter in jail. Like, I don't know, but he touched him somehow. <laughs> Peter, the killing preacher, man. I mean, he just asked him a question. They lied, fall dead. How about Paul? One time he's there in the middle of evangelism. This guy keeps talking against him. He's like, be blind. The guy's like stumbling around, knocking into stuff all of a sudden, you know? That New Testament preacher, by the way, apostolic power. Don't you think that they kind of held accountability on the Stevens and the Phillips? Can you imagine being the second generation Christian who heard about it from these apostolic men? Wouldn't you be walking in fear? Think about that. Don't you, don't you know that Paul kept men accountable? Look at John Mark. Man, there was a time where John Mark frustrated Paul to the point. He's like, man, you got to get that guy out of here. Barnabas is like, we just need to help him. Uh, that's not my job. You know, we would hate a pastor who said that today. But what I love is it kind of showed God's, God creating ministries for people who need help. And this is not notes, but it should be. It bothers me that there's so much talk of soldiers, the idea of a soldier, these Christian soldiers, that, you know, when, he, when he's talking to Timothy, be like the soldier, be disciplined. There's a lot of things that Paul likes to attribute the Christian life to being disciplined like soldiers are. But we don't treat each other like that, like soldiers treat each other. I mean, we treat our veterans no matter what they did. You know how many guys I see in the Air Force that never held a gun a day in their life, and we treat them like those dudes just got out right out, they jumped off the plane, killed 400 men. And I mean, we treat them the same as we treat our best Navy SEAL. What's it, what's, the, what's it matter? Doesn't matter, right? They were part of the 3% who said, I'll go. I'll, I'll do whatever they tell me to do. For me, it's I got to go for my brother, right? Six years. I, he never saw anything other than a base. He, he wore like a flight suit kind of deal and worked on transistor stuff inside airplanes. I give him a hard time. Why? Because I went on the front line and saw front line stuff. But my brother served six years in the military. That's something to be said right? There's no difference when it comes to veterans. But it's funny to me, when you see uh, any veteran, right? When one comes back wounded, when one comes back hurt, when one loses their mind now, we, we are more sympathetic now to our veterans than we've ever been before. When they don't come back right from all the work and all the hardness that it is that war is and, and some of these places are, right? They come back messed up. They come back having compromised even the way they think in there, you know, where they, they're, they're booted out or they're kicked out because they spend too much time drinking. It's too much time drugs based off all the things they've seen or done or, or the experience that they've been around, which is a hard life, I'm telling you. Right? And they're still heroes to us. Then why is it in that way in the Christian faith? How come when a man falls in, he's like the most hated person under this, the earth? If a man falls today, he's like not... 
We don't look at them as they, like, you're the shame of our faith. And we all turn our back on them. I don't understand that. How, what's the difference? The battlefield's the battlefield. And let me tell you something. In the battlefield, it's all crazy. And people come out hurt. And they come out. Now, listen, if they go fight for the other side, that's a different story. That's a different story. I remember Paul who weeped over, uh, who, which one is it? He said he's gone back into the world. He's fell, in, he's fell back in love with the world. Was it Apollos? No, I don't think it was Apollos. I can't remember his name, but there was one where Paul weeps over him because he knows, man, the, 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 the worries, the anxieties of this world were too much where he just went back just to live in his church or just abandon Christ altogether and went back. Well, Paul weeped for the person. But even in these men who fall, David fell. I don't see God loving him less. Matter of fact, as soon as he said he repented, the next sentence says, Nathan said, God has already forgiven you. Then why can't we? They, listen, they are the public acknowledgement of our need for accountability. They might not be able to ever lead us like they, they, they were before. Because I don't know that we ever look at David the same after Bathsheba. Man, we love to like separate. That's the great divide. There's pre-Bathsheba, the glory of David, and then all his greatness. And we want to talk about how David is there. And then there's post-Bathsheba. The kingdom under post-Bathsheba after that sin. Listen, do you think you need to judge David at all afterwards? How many of you would like to have your sons rape your own uh, sisters and your own sons who want to kill you and dethrone you? I think his sin took care of it enough. Sin carries its own reward. You don't have to hate somebody. You don't have to do anything. Sin will reward the person who struggles with sin. This is where we have to be more loving. God, the one thing I will say about all the prophets, the reason they're qualified is because they're people who have great compassion. John was a great man. We loved to, like, who, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to call people like, uh, uh, especially the legal pastors and legalist hypocrites out there, who wouldn't want to call them, oh, you bunch of snakes, who wouldn't want to say those words? You know why he gets away with it and still called the greatest man born of a woman? Because he loved every one of them. He loved them all. They're his people. He's not yelling at them, trying to just yell at them and show them how bad they are compared to how great he is. He's trying to tell them that the Lord is coming. A greater way is coming. Grace is coming. Jesus is coming. He's trying to help them see what can't be seen. And you know, if you're a parent, you already know what that's like. How frustrating it is to know the end of a decision. And no matter what you say to your child, your child's like, whatever. And you're just like, I'm taking that word out of the vocabulary. and We're destroying whatever. We're going to come up with a different word. But it's the truth. So I'm going to leave you a few questions for your journal. Number one, who is your accountability partner? And if you don't have a name there, you need one. If it's your spouse, if it's your friend, if you've got a couple, I have a, I have a two or three. My mentor, Stephen, still calls me. It's funny, when, when he was my, more my mentor, I called him Pastor Stephen all the time. Now that we're kind of buddies, it's still Stephen, but I'm still just as honest then as I am now to him. And, and the difference is now it's kind of back the same way. It was like a one-sided thing, now it's kind of a both-sided thing. And my wife is my other one. Keeps me highly accountable. The other thing is I place accountability before you. If you have questions in the way you see things do, if you have questions in the things that I've said, you're to come ask. That's period. That's just the way it is. There is no such thing as if you challenge it, if you challenge something, I say, come challenge me. Man, it's good for me. You'll build me up. Like, will it always be right? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I'm not going to beat you up over it. 
I'm, it's okay to be challenged. It's all right. If it makes me dig in the Word, if it makes me dig in the Scriptures and find out what more I believe in, is that so bad? There's nothing worse than somebody asks you a question. I'm like, man, i got to go draw close to God now. What? That's not a bad thing. It's okay. Second, why do you need accountability? <clears throat> and that's a personal. I'm not asking you out loud. Be specific. Know yourself. Know your weaknesses. That's why I said I even allow my enemies to critique and, and criticize me. Why? Because nobody knows my weaknesses like they do. And then the more they expose, because, man, no, notice the one thing. If they're really your enemy, they expose your weakness out of arrogance. Otherwise, they'd keep it to themselves and just hit you every time it hurts. But out of arrogance, because they're so much smarter than you, like, they, they pop off. And what they, all they're doing to me is letting me know where I'm weak at. And then I build it up, right? I go learn. I go to work. I get down on my knees. I pray, Lord, help me. Let me see it. Let me see what they see. Let me see it so I can fix it. If it needs to be fixed, God, if it's true, let me know. When your actions are challenged, how do you respond? Are you Christ-like? <laughs> or do expletives come out? <laughs> yeah, that's a valid question. You know? Have you ever told your kids, shut up, just do what I say? Well, why? I don't understand why. Just shut up. Mm-hmm. Be careful. You might be adults that way, too. Sometimes there's opportunities for us to teach our kids. And God forbid we slow down long enough to actually do it. How can you become more accountable? Do you have more than one person in your life? How can you do that? Those, these are questions for you. And what ministry has God called you to? Are you more the pastor? Are you more loving, more caring, shepherding, more of a caring individual? Are you the teacher? Somebody can just easily teach. You find it easy to explain. Are you the prophet? I think some of us carry all of this. I, I do. I think some of us carry it all in this. I, for, for a long time, I thought I was probably more prophet than pastor. But the more I pastor, the more I see that side of me. Definitely God has given me a different heart when I, when I started pastoring because... It was weird. I mean, it's like God turned, turned me into something completely different, like almost instantly. Because when I first came to pastor in Moral Falls, it was my first time pastoring. And God like totally shifted my heart. But then again, I will say this. The longer I'm in ministry, the more my heart shifts continually towards being more loving. The more, especially as God continues to show me things where there's issues, where things aren't like what they should be. And, and uh, you know, I, I told somebody the other day, this, this whole thing right here, this cookbook is really a reformation almost in my theology. You know, when I preached last week, I was like, man, I'm going to slam y'all down. Da, da, and everybody kept coming up to me going, yeah, it was great. We didn't have, it didn't feel like I slammed down. I'm like, All right. Then it was just me. I was just the one getting beat up because this is totally works against everything I do. Like, I mean, I preached the song that was literally pointed directly back at guys like me for the last probably eight years of doing ministry. That, that old last sermon was me. And so this whole idea has been a reformation of my theology. Even into the prophet side, a lot of my friends call me the prophet. Kyle Embry, when he comes here, he's one of the missionaries we support, calls me the prophet. He will call me up on the phone notoriously and go, man, I'm gonna, he would just ask questions. And he would go, all right, I'm going to ask a question, and I just want to see the fire burn. All right, because they know how to point, they know how to push the button. They know to get me on my soapbox. They know what it takes to do that. And so a lot of the times I get, the, I get that identity of the prophet upon me. 
I think a lot of it has to do with the whole gift of confrontation. What I want more than I want a church, what I want more than I want uh, uh, someone to belong to, what I want is revival. My hunger and thirst for revival and God's glory to be known is greater than my need or desire to have anything big. It's greater than my desire to be anybody. Because right now, I would tell you, if God told me right now that if I stepped down, he'd bring revival, I'd already stepped down. I want it more than I want uh, affirmation. I want it more than I want any kind of self-gratification. I want that more than I want anything else. Um, But I need accountability to get there. Even now, and God's holding me accountable even now by challenging me in the way I think. So where is this? Where is the cookbook stuff? Come? It's coming from God challenging me in my prayer life. Well, I want to return. Remember what I said to you? I don't know how to do it. I pursued the Lord. Well, Lord, how do I do it? How do I do it? And I'm constantly like it. You want to talk about the fervent prayer of the righteous? That, uh, I am going to make him sick of hearing me say how. You know what I found out, though? The Lord doesn't get as bothered by questions as we do. He's like, man, great. About time we could have a conversation. I've been waiting on you to slow down long enough so we could do it, right? And, and, and that's why I tell you all the time about God's never ahead of us going to catch up, always going, slow down. You're going to be all right. Listen, I make time. If I want to extend it, I'll extend it. Don't worry about losing time. It's at my beck and call, not yours. So come back to me. Walk with me. Not me walk with you. Walk with me. Walk my pace. And let's talk. And God is plucking from me different things. Last week, God was plucking from me the pride coming from ministry. This week, God is plucking from me the, the I'm in despair like Jeremiah. I'm the guy who always feels like he's prophesying doom and gloom. Like it's all bad. Weeping over it. I, Joy is like, she'll tell you all the time that I'm, I'm a heavy person at least three or four days out of the week. Where I will just sit and write and write and write, just heavy, heavy about things that bother me. Might not share them all the time, but I'm heavy about it. Why? Because I see, I see where we're headed, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. No, I feel like Jeremiah. I'm prophet. I'm saying, listen. I'm shouting as loud as I can, and we still just walking straight towards it. And there's nothing I can do. I feel helpless. I feel helpless. That's the prophet side of me. God's saying, be okay with it. Quit needing affirmation from men so much. Be okay with just walking for me. It's okay to feel like a failure. Doesn't mean you are one. God determines that. Amen? Amen. Who's accountable? Who's your accountability partner? How are you accountable? These are things you need to be thinking of. If you're going to mature in Christ, there's no way you're going to do it without an accountability partner. I want to bring Rachel up. We're going to begin some time of worship. And as we get ready for worship... um, the thing you need to be praying about is this, patience in that moment. Because if you come up to the altar and you go, Lord, I really need some accountability in my life, my gosh, you don't know what you're asking for. You really ready? You want somebody to come and start asking you 50 million questions? You want somebody to start challenging the way you think? Do you really want somebody to challenge those kind of things? Let me tell you something. If you're insecure at all about who you are, get ready. One thing accountability does in our life, it puts checks and balances within us then how are you going to respond? 
want to see the spirit, your own spirit is the spirit of Christ within you? Let somebody ask you the same question over and over and over. Let's see how you respond. Are you going to respond? Are you going to bite back? Or are you going to be Christ-like and loving? You know what? Let me think about that. I mean, sometimes we just need to discern somebody saying something to me to be mean. Or is there truth in it? Because if there's truth in it, shouldn't you handle it? Shouldn't you take that as a gift from God, even though they meant it for something else, like meant it for bad, but God meant it for good to reveal to me what I'm weak at? And then should you hate the person for delivering that news? God used them for his glory towards you. These are things that when you approach the altar, I want you to be praying about. These are the things that when, when we have this moment, worship and time, you're going to close your eyes and you're going to be before the Lord. That you can be honest with him about it all. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord. Lord, we appreciate all you're doing. But Lord, we're going to need your help on this, God. This is a place where we all struggle, God, where nobody... Nobody wants to be the prophet. Nobody wants to hear the prophet either, Lord. But Father, we know we need it. This is where we struggle, Lord. This is where things get hard and uneasy, God. Father, we would just ask that that you would help us endure. Help us in this growth process, God. Lord, give us ears that would hear the truth and the wisdom and be able to know the difference between what is for us and what is against us. Just your way, O oh Lord. Shape us, shape us, God, to your image. In Jesus' name. Will you just stand with us?